Good afternoon. I was um, weeping at the end of worship, so if I am a mess or if my lipstick is everywhere, somebody in the great kindness of your heart signal to me right now, like, check yourself. <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. Um, well, then. Um, uh, my name is Sarah, and my family, Shin and Jordan, my wee daughter, who is homesick, but not COVID, um, have loved calling Kingdom Vineyard our home for the past three years. I'm going to be continuing our sermon series on Daniel after our slightly different Sunday last week where we heard about God's heart for justice and the reality of modern-day human trafficking from Zoe at the International Justice Mission. I think her message connects well with this series, and let me explain a little of why. Toby started off the series by giving us rich context for Daniel 1. Israel was supposed to be a people whose commitment to God and love of neighbor would be a light to those who did not know him. But they failed to keep that covenant. And just as Zoe shared about God's heart for justice, in Amos we see God's anger at injustice, his distaste for people who act religious or holy but fail to practice justice and righteousness. And in Micah, we hear God's heart and call to live justly to a people that struggled to embody that life. So what was once a powerful kingdom or empire of Israel, centered in the house of Judah, falls to Babylonian forces. Homes, communities, and families are destroyed. And young men, sons of the former but now decimated ruling class, who are considered attractive and serviceable to Babylon, they are carried off into exile. This is God's judgment. Daniel then is part of a group of young men, um, of that group, a group of young men who are displaced from home, from comfort, and he has seen tremendous tragedy and violence. He's also part of a young generation, perhaps high school or university age, who have seen their fathers and mothers fail to be just and fail to honor their relationship with God. What resulted in Israel was the exploiting of the poor child sacrifice, and incredible economic injustice and corruption. Put simply, it's not just that Daniel is part of a group of oppressed people, it's that he's also descended from failed leaders whose examples of faith would make him say, I don't want to be a part of that. And for many of us, we may be able to relate to those sentiments. And while some of us may have had the blessings of parents and elders whose lives of faith inspire, Others of us may have grown up in homes where the example of our fathers and mothers made us not want to embrace their Christian faith. And those scars and wounds heal slow. We hear of abuse scandals in church institutions and in leaders, and we see that often Christians have taken on combative and self-protective stances in a variety of current conversations about immigration, the pandemic, politics, and more. And we think, well, I don't want to be like that. To put it into modern language, Daniel lives in a post-colonial context. The empire that was once the kingdom of Israel has fallen. And now Daniel and his friends need to figure out what it means to trust God in a new empire. An empire that has caused great harm to their own people. But they also know that their fathers and mothers were broken and that those elders in the name of God caused great harm and negligence. 
St. Andrews draws people from all over the world. And the UK itself grew powerful through acquiring colonies in its empire. Whether we grew up in one of those colonies or in the UK itself, right? or in another country that claims strong and complicated Christian heritage, history has revealed that to be a Christian in such a context today is to wrestle with the legacy of empire, just as Daniel did. To be a Christian today means to have to wrestle with the reality of such an inheritance, and we could be like the world and say, surely there is no good in the Christian story. Or we could look at the story of Daniel and say, God has a response, a judgment towards those who did not reflect his heart and commands. But he also has incredible mercy and compassion for those who believe that despite a troubled history and inheritance, that God is good. God's own response of indictment and judgment towards the unjust tells us something. It says that the best of our faith and actions points to the good in God, and that the worst in our faith and actions show us how unlike we are to God and to who we are called to be. I'm giving us this context so that we can appreciate what it would mean for Daniel and his friends to choose to say, though my fathers and mothers were unfaithful, and though the ashes of empire all around me, I still choose the Lord. I still believe that he is good. When Daniel and his friends ask to abstain from foods that were given to all the young men in the king's palace, they are trying to figure out life in exile in another empire. And the Babylonian king raids the Jewish temple and brings back some of um, its cherished items. Babylon claims that God has no significance nor power in the world. It's a place that prizes human power and ability. In Babylon, there is no Jewish temple. There is no way to keep Sabbath, meaning a special day once a week, where we refrain from rest, sorry, from work and we rest. And Daniel and his friends are in the king's special school for five years. They ask not to eat the foods that would defile them, meaning they, could, they would have broken a number of eating standards connected to their faith. So they ask for only vegetables. Now, friends, I have done the Daniel fast for many different reasons in my adult life. No meat, grains, dairy, cake, chocolate, or milk in my caffeinated beverage are a rough go. But in the end, they look up looking, they end up looking finer and fitter than all the others, and they become experts as the Lord gives them gifts and the knowledge, um, in knowledge, and they experience favor from the king. This food test is a baby trial, a small but significant act of faith, but there is more to come. Two weeks ago, Jim spoke on the first half of Daniel 2. A bigger test comes up. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that deeply disturbs him, and he comes up with the craziest demand. Somebody find me a wise man who can not only interpret the dream, but tell me what I saw without him knowing what was in it. Friends, this is, this is a crazy outlandish demand from a very powerful demagogue. It's conspiracy theory on steroids. Jim emphasized that this passage shows that God is speaking, as this dream is spiritual, that people, no matter their background, thirst for truth, and that God has the power, the truth, and the power to save. So Daniel and his friends go fast and pray. 
And the dream is revealed to them. Not only have they said, I will trust that if I lean upon God and his promises and the food I eat, he will help me. But they have also said, I will trust that this God has the power and the will to tell me this dream, this crazy request, and save my life. This is much harder. It's not just a matter of not eating cake or steak. God has to show up and save their lives. But friends, it's not just smooth sailing from here. Because Daniel has to be willing to then go and say this dream to believe that what he heard from God is real and his life and the lives of many others, they are on the line. And this is where we enter today's passage, where we left off. And my friend Ruth is going to come and read for us. So you can look on the screen behind you or open to your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, 24 through 49. Thank you. Daniel interprets the dream. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. 
In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will in self endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego chief ministers over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Thanks, Ruth. This dream is a crazy dream, and its meaning even crazier. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, sees a large, gorgeous statue. Its head is gold, its chest and arms silver, its belly and thighs bronze, legs of iron, and feet of partial iron and clay. And y'all, if I saw a picture like that, I would have thought that's an interesting or strange piece of art. But it's supposed to mean something. And the king feels its spiritual weightiness. And to discern it, Daniel and his friends listen in prayer. Our church believes that God speaks today in prayers and dreams. And a friend of mine was discerning what to do as his time at university was coming to a close. He had gone to a prestigious school and he was discerning a call to ministry. But the whole time he was hesitant. He wasn't sure. He had a lot of misgivings. But he wanted to hear from God about it. He was at a conference spending time in worship and prayer, and he had a dream one night. In the middle of a dry desert, 
He saw a cactus plant suddenly bloom, a beautiful and gorgeous flower. And he woke up covered in sweat. The dream meant something, but what? The next day, someone at the conference was praying for him. My friend had mentioned nothing about his dream. And then the person, after listening, said, I see a cactus flower bursting into bloom in the middle of a desert. Does that mean anything to you? And my friend just started weeping. And the guy praying for him continued and said, I hear the Lord saying that he will be with you and that you will see flowers bloom in the desert. And that friend went on to plant ministries in places that others were too afraid to go. Outlandish, right? Just like my friend's dream could only be known and interpreted with God's help, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue, and its meaning could only be given through the Lord. Because this dream, shown to the head of an empire, is about empire and the empires to follow. Nebuchadnezzar, he's told that he and his Babylon are the gold head. And we know from history that the successive layers match successive empires. The silver is the Persian Empire led by Cyrus. The bronze is a Greek empire which rules over their known world. And the last layer of iron and iron and clay is the Roman Empire, which though powerful in battle would ultimately fragment like clay. Then, and you've got to wonder what Daniel was thinking when he was saying this, you know, a rock comes and smashes this statue such that its pieces are swept away, and this rock will be a mountain that fills the earth. Oceans rise and empires fall, but this kingdom will endure forever. And it's interesting to note that Israel's God, Yahweh, is often described to be a rock and fortress of salvation. While other cultures would have had humanoid depictions of their gods, Israel stood out in that they were told not to make graven images of God. The altar at the Jerusalem temple did not have statues because the living humans who worshipped there reflected the image of God as they had communion with him. Jesus continues this rock imagery when he preaches the good news in the shadow of the Roman Empire, and he calls himself the cornerstone. You got, you got to wonder, like, no wonder Nebuchadnezzar was probably, like, covered in sweat as he was prophetically seeing the end of his own empire in this dream, the coming of the one that would smash the subsequent empires. His dream had an element that speaks to the immediate, though not all, kingdoms to follow. But more importantly, his dream, the dream of a non-believing king, points to the coming of Jesus in the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but even if I was sure the Lord was speaking, I would have been a little afraid to tell the head of this empire about his future demise. This could have gone south pretty quickly. Instead, the king falls prostrate before Daniel and his friends and says, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. Now, if only this would mean that Nebuchadnezzar would have taken this dream seriously and humbled himself before God. But if we take a sneak peek at chapter 3, we see that what he does do is go and build a giant golden statue of himself. Seems he didn't quite get the memo, or the meaning of the memo. And Yahweh remains Daniel's God, not Nebuchadnezzar's. Regardless, 
Nebuchadnezzar elevates Daniel and his friends to positions of prestige and leadership. For Daniel and his friends, this dream holds God's promise that God will deliver, that God the rock is with them and that he will save. But though God gives a future promise of salvation, what he does not do is just grab Daniel and his friends and airlift them out of Babylon. God places Daniel in a situation where he can speak of God to one of the most powerful and dangerous leaders in their world. And God answers their prayer with the future, with the promise of future rescue and the most powerful assurance that he is with them in exile, in the ashes of empire. But this is not the end of the story. These guys will continue to face challenging circumstances even as they rise in influence and power. The remarkable thing about Daniel and his crew is not that they have some innate super courage or bravado. It's that they, as the children of a faithless people, they keep choosing to put their trust in God in the face of the shinier, safer things that they could be doing. This is not a kind of personal piety that shields them from the world. It has big consequences. The stakes get higher and higher. Their fathers and mothers wanted to be like all the other nations who had kings. Daniel and his friends are choosing differently. Instead of being just like everyone else, they are choosing to trust God and have that affect how they live, what they put their faith in, what they put their hope in. Faith is not passive mental assent to fact. It is trusting obedience in a person. I try to read up on parenting um, by thoughtful Christians, especially of older children, as I anticipate my three-year-old becoming a teenager one day. What does it mean to be a light in the world, especially if our children end up being friends with those who might seem questionable? Or if you are a student and you're trying to figure out friendships in a socially pressurized world. One of my friends noted, if I'm serious about raising my son or my daughter to be a light in the world, then the solution doesn't just seem to be cutting them off from negative influences. The question seems to be, in which direction is the influence flowing? And if it's from the questionable friend to her child, then the conversation to have with him is, why? And how could it be different? Boundaries may still need to be drawn, but discernment could lead to something unexpectedly transformative. I'll tell you the story of a man, Sam, who was a Christian working in an insurance company in the States. Sam knew that his coworkers often padded their expense reports with items that probably had no business uh, drawing from work funds. But everyone did it to enjoy a little more of life. When it came for Sam to write his report, he didn't add those items. His report was stark compared to others, and that would trigger an audit. Sam was asked to redo his report, to fill it out a little more, to avoid the audit, and he refused because it would be lying and ethically questionable. And the audit came, and Sam became a social pariah. No one would go to lunch with him, and he often ate his bag lunch at his desk alone for three years. During those years, Sam would take calls and messages for the colleagues who were out for lunch, writing down requests from clients and take, leaving notes for his co-workers to follow up on. He was helping them at their work 
with no monetary gains for himself. Sam became known as the trustworthy one people could confide in. And when problems in life came up, his co-workers would ask him for advice, for prayer. Eventually, some of those friends joined Bible studies, decided to follow Jesus. And Sam was faithful with the big and small things. And he needed to choose each day what he was going to choose, put, choose to put his trust in. I'm finding that the Christians who are faithful long-term are not the ones that said in the very beginning of their spiritual journey, I know I'm going to follow God for the rest of my life. They're the ones that said at each critical juncture, each big and small decision, with things as small as food and as large as catalytic dreams about empire, I'm choosing God here, today, in each decision. I felt led as I was writing the sermon to offer a practical challenge as I was, as preparing that, you know, Daniel and his friends, they're not able to observe the Sabbath. In this very restricted, in the very restricted conditions of Babylon, however, they try to be faithful with what they do have the ability to affect, which is their food. For some of us, I do think the Lord's invitation is to keep some kind of Sabbath or fast. And we live in a time that emphasizes production, emphasizes being connected all the time. And there are all kinds of pressures and voices saying, do this, like this, respond to this, don't miss out, don't fall behind. And it's hard to influence others and to choose to live a just and loving life when we live at breakneck speed. In fact, it's often that the world around us makes us look more like Babylon instead of inviting us instead of us inviting our neighbors and loved ones to a different way to live and love in the world. The Sabbath, to be clear, is not about being pious. The Sabbath was God's kindness to Israel and his kindness to us, and and it calls us to a regular pattern of saying, though the rest of the world toils and worries about what it can produce to survive and compete, I'm going to trust my body, my work, my interactions to you, God. I'm going to trust that you provide more than what I can produce I'm going to intentionally keep a space where I refrain from just being a cog in a system and instead rest. It might be that your Sabbath or fast involves a weekly break from social media, some time to be present to God, your friends, or your family. I love my wee daughter and husband, but I also really like my work. Without a Sabbath rhythm, my awareness of God's love for them and how he's inviting me to love them, such awareness drains and wanes drastically, even if they are lovely. And we all suffer as a result. A theologian and sociologist named Jacques Alul writes that in the Old Testament, man shatters the necessity of eating by, by fasting, the necessity of toil by keeping the Sabbath. And when he or she fasts or keeps the Sabbath, she recovers her real freedom. Because this person has been found again by the God who has reestablished communion with her, with him. It is in the little everyday things where we learn to be faithful and follow God so that we can follow him in the bigger and more challenging parts of our lives. The Sabbath doesn't solve all of our problems, but it helps us listen better, to pause in the middle of a world that says, go, go, go. Our pace, our ways, our goals. And instead, to hear and heed the God 
who says he will lead us to green pastures and streams of living water. We're going to have a time of prayer that follows this sermon, and I wanted to extend some specific challenges and invitations for us. First, for some of us, we know all too well how complicated it is to try and choose God in a world that doesn't know him. In which direction does influence flow for you as you live in your world? And if there's a place where you struggle to choose what aligns with God's heart, if there's a place of brokenness, sin, or temptation, how is the Holy Spirit inviting you to choose differently? It might be the Sabbath or a fast, or it might be something else. And if you don't identify as a Christian, perhaps Jesus has brought you here to invite you to choose him, to choose differently. And we invite you to receive prayer, to ask for pictures and words and dreams for God at, from God as you listen in community for his voice, because he speaks today. And for some of us here, Daniel, Daniel's story challenges us as we are wrestling with our spiritual inheritance. We might have had bad experiences with church or Christians. We may wrestle with the legacy of Christian perpetuation of classism, racism, sexism, and we wonder if we can follow Jesus. We may have experienced brokenness with fathers and mothers or are wrestling with how to be mothers and fathers in one of the most trying and outraged times in our recent history. Daniel's story invites us to choose, not with a blind eye to the scars, but to know the difference between the humans who have struggled to be faithful and the one who says, he will be faithful even when we are not. And this is the story of the God of Scripture. Psalm 27 reads, Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And to those who feel for, forsaken by the ones they called mother or father, Jesus, when he tells a story of the prodigal son, speaks of a father who is so committed to love and rescue that he runs out to hug someone who still cannot fathom this deep, an enduring embrace. This is the God who is committed to delivering us from evil, from harm and from sin, from generational patterns of addictions, anxiety, fear, shame, and self-hatred. And if you need to be hugged home, if you need to be embraced by this Father who shows us how to be children, sisters and brothers, mothers and fathers, against the ashes and mistakes of those who have stumbled before us, Come and receive prayer today. Come and hear his voice. Come and know his rest. Would you stand with me as we pray? Jesus, we thank you that in your presence there is no shame. That in your presence that you welcome us with deep love and mercy and grace. And Jesus, for some of us, there are places in our lives where it's really hard to resist the influence of the world. It's hard to be kind. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to choose to worship you when the world says to worship ourselves or other things. 
If there's a place where you are inviting us to choose you, even as we are here today, right now, waiting on you, would you be speaking words of life to us? Would we hear invitation to choose differently? And Jesus, for some of us, we need to know that though our father and mother forsake us, that you receive us. And whatever that place of fear, of scars, of disappointment might be, would you speak the words of welcome, home, and love that say something different is possible with you. We wait on you, Holy Spirit.